Hi, my name is Saul and you're listening to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the City of London as a single linear story with a single narrator. Over the previous 47 chapters, I've tried to keep the story as entertaining as we have followed the tale of the city from its earliest incarnations. But now we have reached 1066, arguably one of the most important years in the city's history. And this is part two of an account of what happened to London during that year. So, without further ado, welcome then to Chapter 48, The Year of Three Kings, Part 2. So, just in case, for some reason, you missed the previous part, Harold Godwinson had stayed to coup d'etat against the rightful claimant to the throne, Edgar Etherley. The response to this coup had been all of England's neighbours had suddenly gone from being basically allies of England to being active enemies of England. Harold had been trying to hold his regime together and had actually survived a sudden and unexpected attempt to take his throne from Norway. After butchering the King of Norway, Harald Hadrada, and his own brother Tostig at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, sometime around September 26 that year, word would have finally arrived in London of their new king's victory. Meanwhile, William of Normandy was in crisis. Sometime round about September 13th, he decided to risk it all and launch the invasion, but the weather was evil and several ships were wrecked. The expedition had turned back and Many men had drowned and even more had deserted and food was running low. Over on the shores of Normandy, the shift in the weather that had just taken place was exactly what William of Normandy most needed. He would have been having horrendous time trying to hold his force together. How many men did he take with him? Well, I've seen estimates reach as high as 30,000 men. But I tend to be one of those historians who agree with the Victorian era guesstimates which settled his number at around seven to 8,000 men. It's worth considering that at no point, as far as we can tell, during the Norman Conquest did England have more than 8,000 Normans in the country as a whole. So that figure feels right. And also, I'd trust the Victorians on this. Normally, I don't trust Victorian historians, but when it came to using small forces to subjugate native people, the Victorians were kind of experts. On September 27th of 1066, The high tide around the port of St. Valéry in Normandy was around 3pm. The sun was due to set at about 5.30pm. And according to one source written around the time, it says that William's vast fleet only finally put to sea when, quote, the day was already closing in and the sun was departing, unquote. So this ties into the tidal data we know as the vast fleet sailed into the twilight of the English Channel. Duke William stood upon his ship, the Mora, a ship prepared for him by his wife, Matilda, probably, its figurehead, supposedly a small boy, a horn upon his lips, facing the distant shores of England. No sooner had the first ships reached the open sea than they dropped anchor. This was to allow them and the entire fleet make sure everyone was in formation, all the ships were together, and they would wait until everybody had cleared the port. As darkness fell, the ships became illuminated by torches, casting shadows onto the waters, as crews organised ships and their cargoes of men and many, many horses into the correctly formed mass. 
For several hours they idled off the Normandy estuary until sometime around 9pm. A signal lantern was lit upon the mora and a trumpet sounded and the fleet as one lifted their anchors and rode the wind towards England. By 6am the next day, William's mora was supposedly isolated ahead of all the other ships. True, untrue, probably not, but it doesn't matter. The rest of the fleet caught up and the fleet sailed basically along the coast until by 9am this vast invasion force finally decided to decamp at the port of Pevensey. This was probably not William's chosen destination. The port itself was fairly insubstantial and unimportant, but it was known to have some Roman ruins nearby, which would provide William and his men with a basic foundation of a fortification into which they could place their ever-so-precious and, well, at this point probably panicking horses within. Pevensey Bay was also large enough to allow his vast fleet, comprising of several hundred ships, the space to unpack. But for reasons I will explain later, William had probably wanted to land further along the coast, in Hastings all along. But he and his men probably didn't want to try their hand remaining at sea for too long, so quickly he had his men secure the Roman ruins in Pevensey and began offloading his war horses in numbers to stockade them up there. A contingent of his knights were mounted up straight away and ordered to ride fast the dozen or so miles up the coast to occupy Hastings, and over the next few days, William moved most of his force there. Quickly, he ordered his men to reinforce the defensive positions and allow them to get their bearings and to send out scouts. As Harold had spies in Normandy, so William had spies in England, and he was awaiting news. By the evening of September the 28th, this started to come in. At the same time, news would have already arrived in London of the landing on the Sussex coast. The city would have heard that the forces of the Duke of Normandy were now established and roughly where they were, and word was now probably sent fast to King Harold, who was consolidating up north after the aftermath of his victory at Stamford Bridge. We do not know the exact details of what Harold did over the next few days. We know he was up north on the 28th of September. News could not have reached him until probably October the 1st, but we know that by October the 8th, he was in London. The average guesstimate about what happened is that the second Harold Godwinson got word of William's arrival, he dismissed the fjord he'd used to win the Battle of Stamford Bridge. He then sent riders to raise a new fjord in the south, his fjord, the fjord of Wessex and East Anglia, and then, along with a few mounted companions, rode fast to make it to the city. Once again, for the second time this year, London became the centre of activity as messengers and heralds rode out the summons of the fjord had been issued. Meanwhile, around the 1st of October, Duke William probably heard that Harold had not only met a Norwegian force, he had utterly destroyed it. According to some, the man who sent a message with this intelligence was none other than King Edward's old steward, Robert Fitzwemark. Supposedly, his warning to William was stark. Harold had destroyed the Vikings and slain both Hardrada and his rebellious brother Tostig. He knew where William was, and he was coming with a force, and William should stay behind, reinforce positions. Maybe William would have considered it. William and his men were busy arranging fortified structures, castles, to be built in Hastings and Pevensey, and monks were now being sent, carrying words of communication between the two commanders. William, at this point, seemingly offered Harold a deal, 
very similar to the one his father had made years ago. You know, make me the foreign king of England and I will allow you run the whole nation for me. Harold responded by offering William a counterclaim. Go back home and I'll let you live. Well, that ended negotiations quickly, I felt. London was witness then to this and were on the horns of a dilemma. Harold had clearly stolen the throne. He was obviously an illegitimate king. But he was at least nominally an illegitimate king within the structures of English society. He spoke the language. He understood the rules of the society, even if he broke them. William was different, not alien. London would never have seen the Normans as total aliens. After all, two out of the last three bishops of London had been Normans, and the third one, Spearhaddock, had been a thief, so he doesn't even count. The city's only inbuilt noble was a Norman, and London merchants had traded with the people of Normandy for decades by now. So there wasn't a total, these guys are completely alien to us feeling, to be found within London. But it was a war, and while Harold Godwinson was clearly not the good guy, William of Normandy wasn't either. He was an outsider, like Canute had been, and while Harold wasn't of the line of Alfred at all, he'd won at Stamford Bridge, and he was a good war leader, it seemed, and London liked a good war leader. Thus, as Harold arrived and spent time preparing, the city became the crucial nexus of his regime right here and right now. From the shires, the fjord came back again, answering the new king's call a second time, the crisis ongoing and all-encompassing. Men would be pouring into the region, armed and ready. Day after day, they would travel, probably riding in by horse from East Anglia and Middlesex and then beyond. Meanwhile, the ships of the ship fjord were being repaired and readied again. At least this would give Harold options. And it's at that moment... London witnessed something many at the time could not understand. Harold moved out, moving south with what troops he could to meet William. And he moved before the fjord had gathered properly. The E version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says he left London, quote, before all his host came up, unquote. And later John of Worcester said he left with only half his available troops. And this one decision has led to endless speculation by a plethora of skilled historians and a legion of armchair generals. Why did Harold leave London with only part of the forces he could have brought with him? There are two competing theories. Theory one, William was unleashing his men in the occupied region and he was burning and pillaging and looting and supposedly this was a deliberate policy designed to provoke Harold and Harold just got angry and took the bait. The second theory is that after having taken out Hardrada at Stamford Bridge, Harold was hoping speed and surprise would work for him and he could take William before he was ready for it. Hmm. The problem with these options, as learned as they are, is that for me, they fail to deal with the logistical practicalities of the issues before both men. When you consider these, the practical bread and butter issues faced by both protagonist Harold and William's actions make a lot more sense. William had landed at Pevensey, but he immediately moved his force eastwards towards Hastings, and I said he probably intended to land at Hastings, and there's a really simple reason for this. Two, in fact. Firstly, Hastings was a region where land had been owned and run by the monks of the Abbey 
of St. Valeros of Somme, who were based in Normandy, which meant that William had proper intelligence from those monks. And the second reason is what those monks had discovered was Hastings wasn't just a port. In the 11th century, the inlets of the river Breed and Bulverhide on either side had made the Hastings region a peninsula with secure flanks for a bridgehead. By moving here, William could know that the only way to him was from the north. For Harold then, even with William building a fortified location within Hastings, the most obvious tactic to him then would have been to move a body of men to the north of this peninsula and simply block it, and then do what he had originally planned to do back in the summer. Place a buttload of other troops into the ship fjord and sail them around and land them to the south of William's forces. Once again, deploying the pincer tactic he'd used in Scotland and in Wales and had planned to do earlier this year. This makes sense. And it's also clear that William kind of thought this is what Harold was doing because he was using so much of his invading force to man the new fortifications in Hastings. Added to that, William had an additional problem. He'd brought over hundreds, if not thousands, of horses. It is worth remembering. Norman knights had these amazing war horses they rode into battle with. Huge, violent, skittery creatures. But they only rode them into battle. They didn't ride them to battle. For that, you needed a riding horse and probably one or two other horses. So for every knight, there was at least two, possibly as many as four horses with them. And they, and the army that was around these horses, were living off the land. And it was the end of October. The grass around Hastings had stopped growing and his army needed grass as fodder. He literally needed to move north. So Harold needed to stop him. Every day William was stuck between the rivers Braid and Bulverhide was a day harder for him to keep his own cavalry going. Thus, Harold marched what many could to the north of this peninsula and stopped at the top of a hill in a good, strong, defensive position. William realised his peril straight away and knew he had only one course of action. Rather than sit and wait for a second army to sail up behind him, he had to strike now. And thus we come to the Battle of Hastings. This is a podcast about London, so we don't need to detail that battle, nor do we need to get into discussions about how King Harold died. And for the record, while some maintain he was struck in the eye with an arrow, very probably he wasn't. At least one source written round the time says towards the end of the battle, a party led by Duke William, Count Eustace, who was carrying the uh, Pope's banner, and a bunch of others, spotted Harold still fighting as the sun was setting towards the end of the battle, and they fell upon him, hacked him apart, chopped off his head, and perhaps even chopped off his genitals as a trophy. And not just him, two of his brothers, his last two brothers, Lefwine and Gerth, were also mutilated and hacked apart at the Battle of Hastings. The king was dead. Long live the king? No. William had won the Battle of Hastings. Well done, old chap. Brilliant. But beyond Hastings and the peninsula it was on, every single other town in England resisted him. 
and one town was the beacon of that resistance more than all others, London, the untaken, unbeaten fortress town that had resisted siege and attack numerous times. And how did London take the news of the defeat? It was ready for a fight. It really was. One source says, quote, A crowd of warriors from elsewhere had flocked there, and the city, in spite of its great size, could scarcely accommodate them all, unquote. Which is basically a nice way to say the forces that were to make up the Schiffjord had assembled and were continuing to assemble. Harold's second army was ready. No doubt the region around Lambeth and Southwark especially would have seen the ship houses of the English ships filled with activity as the fleet was prepared. And survivors of the Battle of Hastings began to arrive in London. Quote, the obstinate men who'd been defeated in battle, unquote, one source calls them, obstinate because they weren't surrendering. But there was no sense of defeat going on. This many men, this many survivors, London appeared ready to take war to this invader. Only there was a slight problem. Who was in charge? Like, who were they fighting for now? Harold was dead. Well done. His brothers were dead, all of them. Who was the king? It is now London decided to do that thing they do every so often that made me call this entire section of the city's history the Kingdom of London. Again, London would choose who their king was and the rest of the country, including those damn Normans, could just like it or lump it. The sources say, quote, Archbishop Eadred and the citizens of London wish to have Edgar Aetheling as king, as indeed was his right by birth, unquote. So, formally, Edgar was the second king of 1066. Understand, he had at this moment the support of the archbishops, Archbishop of York in particular, and he had the support of London. And the support of London alone was good enough for Edmund Ironsides, who'd been proclaimed king and crowned in London after Ethelred died. Edgar, however, could not receive coronation until that upcoming Christmas. But London was behind him. All he needed to secure his rule was the support of, really, the only two other nobles who mattered right now, Morcar, Earl of Northumbria, and his older brother Edwin, Earl of Mercia. And it appears if they, after having lost badly to Hadrada at the Battle of Fulford, had finally made their way to London in the aftermath of Hastings. And their first move was to get their sister, Harold's widow, out of town. And then they gave their backing to Edgar. Edgar Aetheling was now King Edgar. Yeah. The fact is Edgar was only a boy. An unproven boy who didn't speak the language clearly. And while he supposedly had support... For the likes of the Thanes and Earls of England, there was much to think about right now. Could this kid unite the nation? What would happen to them if he failed? While London, bloody-minded, fierce London, and its ferocious residents spoke of battle and war and revenge, the men who commanded the rest of England hesitated. And in that hesitation, William was acting. After the Battle of Hastings, William had buried his dead and withdrew to Hastings to await word of England's inevitable surrender. He waited, and he waited for two whole weeks before he realised England, and above all London, wasn't in the mood to surrender. 
William took what remained of his forces and moved north, tentatively seeking out what reaction he would get. He reached the town of Romney, where apparently some of his fleet had landed by accident and the residents had made short work of them. In retaliation, William destroyed Romney, butchering everybody and burning it to the ground, and then he marched on to Dover. Here, supposedly, a large force of the Fjord had assembled. Dover had strong defences. Clearly, England had enough men to defeat the Normans, but the Godwinsons had done a job in England in the decade leading up to this moment. There was no one to lead them, and the Fjord of England, without strong leadership, never performed well. The defenders of Dover fled before the Normans, and the town fell, also burning at the hands of William's men. Here he stayed for a week, some say a month, but it was probably just a week, strengthening his defences and maybe picking up some reinforcements and stragglers who'd arrived from overseas. But during the stay in Dover, William's men, either from local polluted water or from bad meat, introduced dysentery to his army, and it ravaged his troops. William seems to have been struck down with it himself. Rumours abounded that William had died. Days and weeks passed. A type of phony war settled upon the land. William had killed Harold, but was seemingly cemented onto the south coast. The rest of England resisted him under the rulership of King Edgar, it seemed, but there was a genuine ambivalence towards him, a sense of hesitation. London's forces were certainly not directly commanded by the king, it seems. So who was in charge? Well, we have a name. A local Middlesex London man called Ansgar. He had that specific rank that suggested he was one of the new Anglo-Scandinavians who made up the echelons of London's infrastructure. He was called a staller. Ansgar wasn't a nobody. He was the grandson of Tovey the Proud, the man whose second wedding in Lambeth had seen the death of King Harthacanute, which we covered a whole chapter on. Ansgar's life is a really nice reflection of the politics of London in Edward's reign. His father, a man called Æthelstan Tovison, had been the port reeve of London's docks, and because of that, he'd been appointed the shire reeve, or sheriff, of Middlesex. Now, 22 years earlier, this Æthelstan had been implicated in some conspiracy against Edward, but King Edward didn't want to lose a family who seemingly shared his dislike of the Godwinsons. And so while Æthelstan was punished, his son, Ansgar, was given his father's roles and the title Staller. Over the next 20 years, Ansgar served Edward faithfully. He was part of a small cabal of nobles who seemed to have been associated with Edward. I mean, the year before King Edward died, Ansgar, along with a Mercian of Danish ancestry called Bondi, the Norman Robert Fitzweimark, who we mentioned already, and a man called Ralph of Brittany, all appear of witnesses on a royal charter in which they're described as royal stewards. Ansgar, Edward's royal steward, had, it seemed, eventually thrown his lot in with Harold Godwinson. Based on his family history, he probably never liked Harold, so he probably did this out of duty as Port Reeve of London and Staller. Later sources do claim that after Harold and his brothers had been butchered and mutilated at Hastings, Asgar had returned to the city 
terribly injured but still ferocious. Whatever the case, Ansgar at this moment, for me, becomes the personification of London in the 11th century at this moment. Why do I think that? Well, despite being reduced potentially to a litter and supposedly having to be carried everywhere, it was Ansgar who became the common sense fury of the residents of London. It was said to have been him as Staller who had kicked what remains of the Witangamot to pick Edgar as king and forced Morcar and Edwin to support him. Ansgar comes across as this absolutely exasperated Londoner, the personification of the Kingdom of London. Literally, I imagine him going, right, you utter numpties. This is a crisis. See the kid? He's the king. Everyone support him. We'll sort it all out after we beat off these bloody foreigners. Got it? It was Ansgar who consolidated the Fjord of London and the men who were arriving there. And according to the sources, it was also Ansgar who was building up the defences of London. And that last reference is really important. Because if you think about it, London's defences didn't need building up. It had this great big bloody stone wall around it and a ditch probably around that. However, two things have to be kept in mind right now. Long-term listeners may remember back during chapter 33 when I described a flood that may or may not have been a tsunami had smashed into London some decades earlier and potentially caused some damage to the walls and I did say that we know that sometime between 1016 and 1066 part of the river wall of London had collapsed possibly over on the west side of London so if Ansgar is building up defences that means he could be doing something there however William and his men were not going to get on their ships again they were not bloody Vikings and as such they could be coming by land from the south and that meant Ansgar realised the attack would be aiming straight for the Burr of Southwark. This is what Ansgar started building up. Meanwhile, William was being forced to head north. But at this point, all the resistance towards him between here and the River Thames seemed to melt away. Canterbury surrendered without a fight. London had become the nexus of resistance towards William and the Fjord had one weapon William could not counter, the River Thames itself. All along it, for as far as Oxford and maybe beyond, the forces of the Fjord reinforced their burrs. William and his depleting army would find no way over the river. It would stand as a watery barrier against this Norman. William's vanguard approached London. And supposedly, Duke William sent messages to Ansgar offering him the chance to retain his lands and be in with the new regime if he just surrenders. At first, it appears that Ansgar is going to go for the offer. But then Duke William realises Ansgar is just playing for time and is using that time to improve the defences in Southwark and around London Bridge. That was the bottleneck. That was the key. The only way William could take London was to force London Bridge and hold it and ride it across into the city. William was forced to commit his vanguard. These were heavily armed Flemish and Norman knights. Against him, the Fjord of London, based around the walls of Southwark Burr. The forces of the Normans smash into Southwark. What follows is by all accounts a vicious affair, although 
Some say, and I have read it, that Ansgar ordered his men out to attack the Normans. I'm going to dismiss that as rubbish because William's force was not a besieging force. It was a hit hard and trampled the enemy force, a huge hulking man tanks in armour. The Normans made quick work of the defences, but the ferocity of this defence staggered them. The Normans smashed open the burg. Southwark fell, but the Normans couldn't take the bridge. London stood defiant, holding off William with a ragtag bunch of defenders, led apparently by an injured warrior lying on a cot, screaming for defenders to just keep killing these foreigners. Eventually, unable to make it to the bridge or onto the bridge itself, the Normans retreated. But as they had done so far, they make an example of Southwark. The Burr and the town within it, including the Royal Mint, are burned to the ground before the eyes of the Londoners. I'll also add personally that if the Normans were burning Southwark, then probably meant they fell upon Lambeth as well. That was Harold Godwinson's land, and it was also the operational headquarters of the Shipfield, the symbol of London defiance. It was here, I do believe, that the ship houses of the English fleet were located. All of this would have been burned and destroyed before the horrified eyes of the residents of London smoke billowed from the south bank as William of Normandy's men showed bloody resolve. The damage was so bad that nearly 20 years later, Southwark had not fully recovered from what the Normans did that day. And yet the Normans had not taken the bridge. They had not been able to attack London once again, as it had now a half dozen times this century. London stood amidst the smoke of Southwark, defiant, unconquered and proud. William has to bypass Southwark. London rejoices. Basically, as I said, the entire Thames was held against him, with every crossing closely guarded. William was going to have to go as far as Oxford before he could circle back and take London. Behind the river, the Saxon forces would be raised anew and they would drive out the damn foreigner. But then one of the Saxons along the river agreed to allow William cross the river, provided afterwards William does right by him. The rumour went round that Seward, the excommunicated Archbishop of Canterbury, gave up on Edgar and he and the Lord of the Burr of Wellingford surrendered to William. And now suddenly William was on the other side of the Thames and the Saxon resistance is seriously shaken. William begins encircling London, supposedly ravaging everything as he went until he established a camp in Berkhamsted and probably constructed a fast Moth and Bailey castle there. The response from London must have been one of shock, but not despondency. London had dealt with invading forces north of the River Thames as often as they had from invading forces south of the River Thames. As long as the river was not blockaded, they could hold out. One can imagine Ansgar reminding the Fjord of the assets they had. But then, according to all reports, the Earls of Mercia and Northumbria, Morcar and Edward, left London with their Fjord. There were various explanations given, some claim. One of them wanted to be king and went off in a sulk. I see no evidence for this, really. Others that they wanted to get back to their earldoms in case William decided to switch north, and that makes sense. But whatever the case, they took men and broke out to the north before William could encircle the city, and London was left with a dilemma. Look, the city had shown 
time and again that in defense of a king, even a weak king, they would fight. They would defy. There's nothing to worry about. And Edgar was chosen all legal like. Yes, he'd had no coronation. He was not anointed king. But it was a small detail. He was still the king. But as December's cold weather began to bite, the citizens of London looked out and realised, OK, sure, we can hold out against this invader. Their city had never fallen to any enemy. But it had been left dangling twice in the past by both Ethelred and by Edmund Ironsides. And the thing is, given that this William was burning anything that defied him along his path, he didn't seem like the kind of man you could defy, kill a shed load of his men and then pay him off with a Dane guild as London had done with... Forkbeard and Canute, no, no, London realised they kind of had to make a pragmatic choice. They couldn't stand alone this time. Apparently Ansgar was part of the delegation alongside King Edgar himself, who travelled to William and there offered their surrender to him. And that was that? Not quite. William demanded that he would be crowned. Coronation was to be, in his mind, his moment of victory. And since Harold had been crowned in the Abbey of Westminster on Thorny Island, he demanded he would be crowned there, which meant he was coming to London, or at least to the south of it, which meant he sent a forward force to the city, possibly expecting a hostile response. He got one. Apparently, London was still filled with the survivors of Hastings and the families of those killed at the battle. One source says that the advance guard of William, quote, found many rebels determined to offer every possible resistance. Fighting followed immediately, and thus London was plunged into mourning for the loss of her sons and citizens, unquote. That particular source may not be the most accurate, but when you compare it to a slightly more accurate one that said William had sent an advanced force into London to construct a fortress within the city, quote, as a defence against the inconstancy of the numerous and hostile inhabitants, unquote, then we can perhaps get a closer picture of what we think actually happened. William had wanted to be crowned king on Thorny Island in Westminster Abbey. As such, he needed London pacified. King Canute had pacified London with 40 ships, filled with a bunch of Vikings. William decided to pacify it with a fortress, a force multiplier of some kind. Now, in the process of quickly building a sturdy wooden fortress somewhere in London, fighting had broken out with the residents, and since it was within the walls and they didn't have the walls to help them, well, the Normans brutally ended that fight particularly quickly. And then the main force of William's army arrived, and they would have been stationed near and around the city perhaps at their new fortress, which would have been built, I think, in either the southwest or southeast of the city. We'll get to that in a future chapter. But they would have been placed to prevent anyone leaving London and attacking Thorny Island. And then on Christmas Day, 1066, after that wild and blood-soaked year, William the Conqueror was crowned in the Abbey of Westminster, the third king of 1066. Tradition tells us that his coronation was only spoilt 
when men outside heard the acclamations of support for William and thought there was an attack going on. I think that's complete nonsense. If they thought there was an attack upon their king going on, why didn't they rush in to help him? No, the most likely explanation was simple. During the ceremony, the Normans stationed on Thorny Island looked around and realised this particular part of London was rich, very rich, with really nice trappings. It was all expensive-like. And they decided to help themselves to what they could see in the King's Hall and those temporary buildings and... Yeah, yeah, and being Normans, they set things on fire. And that caused Thorny Island to go up in smoke and a panic set in in the Abbey and most of the guys in the Abbey just ran deserting their king to a degree. Uh, yeah, what a mess. Troops were stationed in and around the city. Southwark and Lambeth were smouldering embers. Smoke rose from the looted halls of Westminster. And new towers were being constructed to pacify the city. London was now occupied by a new regime. At the end of the year of three kings, William the Conqueror's reign had just begun and the great dying came upon the land. And I'm going to end it there. Thank you for listening. I hope it was entertaining. I really enjoyed writing it, but I really hope that you enjoyed listening to it. I'd like to thank all the people who have commented on Imja or on Apple for the lovely reviews and comments and feedback I've been receiving. Your support means so much. It really does. You have no idea. I'd also say if listeners would like to support the podcast and, you know, maybe make it so I could do this full time. Wouldn't that be nice? And maybe make a contribution towards my ongoing caffeine addiction, which is what fuels most of this podcast, then you can follow the link to the Find Me A Coffee webpage where you can give a single one-off donation or you can become a member. I haven't been able to get the time to give members benefits just yet. I want to start doing things like, you know, the members who support me. I want to give you episodes early and things like that. I'm working towards it. So any contribution you can do to help would be greatly appreciated. And that's that. Alright, enough of me speaking. I always get tongue-tied at these moments. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll speak to you next week. Okay, bye.